turn now to God's word, uh, and we'll turn to Jeremiah uh, 29. If you have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to turn there. It's also printed for you in your bulletin on page 8. But again, Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Again, verses 1 through 11. Hear this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying unto you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God It stands forever. Amen. I just want us to see two things in this sermon text this morning. And the two things are this. The first is that we live today in a place much more akin to Babylon than Jerusalem. We live in a place today much more akin to Babylon than to Jerusalem. The second thing is that we are exiles placed for a purpose in one city, but persevering toward another. I'll say it again. We're exiles placed for a purpose in one city, but persevering toward another. So let's just consider those in the time the Lord has given to us. We are living in a place much more akin to Babylon than Jerusalem. As you know, as we even mentioned a moment ago when Jay was so kind to, to come up here, Uh, My family and I were called here to Lake Osborne back in 2018, but it wasn't until this summer uh, in July that we finally made the full relocation up here uh, to Lake Worth, up here to Palm Beach County. And many factors uh, were at play. First, as we know, to commute, you know, uh, is just not a big deal in this world, that there is this continuity between the tri-counties, you know, Palm Beach, Broward, and Dade, there's some overlap. So to commute... Uh, is not a foreign concept in 
today's world. Secondly, we, as a new pastor, uh, coming into a new situation, wanted to learn the terrain, right? To, to learn the setting and the situation and to make adequate plans as we prepare to come and, and shepherd this congregation. And thirdly, as you've heard me say over and over again, you know, we had deep, deep roots in Broward County. That's where I was born. That's where my wife was born. My parents were born there. My kids were born there. You know, I'd grown up there all my life. And so to, to, to break those roots, even though it's not that far, was a big deal for us. And so we were trying to, to take our time as we untied that knot. Even now, if we're honest, uh, we still have to remind ourselves sometimes that we finally moved. We, we default to relationships. We default to places still in Broward. We default to restaurants uh, in Broward. Uh, we're, we're big Zona Fresca fans. I don't know if anybody likes Zona Fresca. There's one in Del Rey near your office actually, right? That's Palm Beach County, but there's not one right here in our neighborhood. We used to live behind one. It's like our favorite restaurants. We still default to restaurants and relationships and places in Broward. Uh, one example even uh, right now is we let our son, my son Wyatt, finish uh, Little League in Broward County, okay? And so, you know, that's been fun and been fine, and he's kept those relationships and friendships. Every time we get in the car and make that drive, we think, oh, man, this is not the best idea, right? We have to come to grips with the fact that we have moved, right? We're here. Well, I say that really uh, as a way of contrast, a way of stark contrast and illustration. For while our move as a family uh, was the beginning of an incredibly new and exciting chapter, when you look here in Jeremiah, when it came to the move for the people of God in his time, it could not have been more difficult. It could have not have been more, more different than what we're experiencing, where this is, the, again, an exciting and bright and new chapter and opportunity and privilege to be here. But for the people of God in Jeremiah's time, and, and, and particularly in this section of the book that bears his name, that move was earth-shattering. It was cataclysmic. It was to the, the height of, of difficulty and of pain. The setting of Jeremiah, as you know, is the exile of those in Judah, those in the city of Jerusalem, to Babylon. That as Babylon eclipses Assyria on the world stage, they begin to, to extend and to consolidate their empire, and they eventually overrun Judah. They eventually sack the city of Jerusalem. They eventually destroy the temple, as we know. But even prior to that, there's this lead-up where they are bringing wave after wave of exile from the city of Jerusalem, from the territory of Judah, into Babylon. And as those people are relocated, it's horrific. And it's world-shaking. And it's this time of incredible uncertainty and chaos and doubt and questioning. And they could pretend like it wasn't happen, happening. They could pretend, you know, like it was just this, this dream or this nightmare. But to do so was to live in denial. Den of denial. And it's into this situation that Jeremiah writes his letter and he writes these words. And as you can see, he's basically telling them, he's reminding them, he's imploring them that they can put the blinders on all they want. They can put the, you know, the 3D glasses on, the VR goggles. They can try to create this alternate reality and pretend like it wasn't happening. But again, to do so was to be in 
denial. And so he writes this letter to remind them they're not in Kansas anymore. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. That things have changed. Things have changed. And what he tells them to do, as you see here, is he calls the people basically to, to interpret their situation, to interpret their situation as the people of God in similar fashion to how Paul in the New Testament, when he writes his Thessalonian letter, tells Christians, how do you process the loss of a loved one? How do you process the loss of one who has gone before you into glory? What does Paul say in Thessalonians in chapter 4? If you remember, he says that we grieve, right? But we grieve with what? With hope. So we do grieve at the loss of, of, of a loved one. The people of God here in Jeremiah's time, they do grieve at this new reality, but they don't grieve without purpose. They don't grieve without an ultimate hope that stands behind it. And I say all of that by way of sort of lengthy introduction because I think that we are entering into a similar time as Christians in the West. That we are entering into a similar time as Christians even in America. And we have to, you know, qualify that statement a little bit. First, you know, the United States, though remarkable, though unparalleled in world history, though a nation we love, I love a nation we can be proud of and, and patriotic for. I'm all those things. Thankful to be an American, grateful to God for where we, are been, we have been placed. We as Christians cannot think of America in promised land terms, right? We can't think of it that way. We can't think of America as being synonymous with Israel in the Old Testament. Now, again, historically speaking, uh, America uh, felt like a promised land to its original founders. It was the haven for religious freedom and, and Protestant principles they desired. It certainly was founded, as we know, with language and with imagery that is loaded with biblical you know, metaphor and, and connotation. And yes, it has Christian virtues that it stands on and Christian principles. And yes, many of the men that founded America, not all, but many, were indeed confessing and believing Christians. But what do we know from history? That just like Constantinople, under the emperor Constantine, right? Just like even places like Geneva under Calvin, that ultimately any attempt at a Christian society this side of heaven will never be perfect. Will never be perfect. It can never be permanent. But what does our anthropology instead teach us? What does our understanding of human nature teach us? That it will always have cracks in it. It'll always be subject to crumbling. That scripture and our, our understanding of human nature, again, teaches that everything this side of the new heavens and the new earth are temporal. They're temporal. And if we don't want to you know, believe that, all we have to do is look at the one example we're actually given in scripture of a chosen nation, which ends where? In exile. It ends in exile. Now, was that because God had abandoned his people? No, Right? Was it because he, he shifted his favor off of them and said, you know what, the deal's off? No, it was none of those things. 
But rather, what did it show them? That, that God's identity placed upon them wasn't dependent on earthly institutions. It wasn't dependent upon geography or, or, or national boundaries, but rather the whole larger point of Scripture is this covenantal framework, right? That what unites us to God ultimately isn't geography, isn't national boundaries, aren't human institutions, but the mechanism which we celebrated last week on Reformation Sunday of faith, of faith, of faith in the God who is building a kingdom of every tongue, tribe, and nation, united around the common Savior, Jesus Christ. That that's what defines us. That's what, that's what grounds our identity through the changing winds of history. That's why Paul in the New Testament can speak of the church as the people of God. Not a single nation, not a single people group, not a geography, again, or national boundary, but the church. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, that is the people of God. Those are whom his promise is attached and can never fade or falter. And so for those of us here, even in a place like America, for those of us as Christians in the West, we can long, right, for better days. That's okay. We can long for even places in our own history where there was a greater cultural morality, where to be a Christian was a little more acceptable even and maybe even applauded, right? We can long for those things. They're very good things to, to want, I want that for my own children. I would love for my children to grow up in a place where there is a, a strong and robust cultural morality. And we can do our best to turn that tide. But, but, when we see certain foundations crumble, when we see certain things, you know, teeter and, and, and totter and, and, and waver, we have to have the eyes to see it. We have to be willing to admit it. We have to recognize that a tree is known by her fruit and the cultural fruit and the moral fruit even in our own country tells us what? That we live in a place more like Babylon, more like Babylon than Jerusalem. And, and you can disagree with how we've gotten there. You know, there's room for historical interpretation about why we're here today in, in, that, in that situation. But we can't deny that we're here that we're here, in this context, in this day, in this scenario and situation. To maybe lighten the room a little bit, um, Jerry Seinfeld, who you know I quote endlessly, mentions how when you fly on an airplane, right, when you fly commercial, uh, the pilot always gets on the radio and says, this is the pilot speaking. I'm going to take it up to 30,000 feet and make a left at Chicago, and he kind of gives you the whole, you know, gamut of what he's about to do, and Seinfeld remarks that we don't care, really, you know. We don't get on the intercom and say, I'm having the peanuts now, uh, you know, and, and kind of give you our play-by-play. -play. Seinfeld basically says, we don't care what you do, just get us where it says on the ticket, right? I paid for a ticket to Los Angeles, that's where I want to end up, right? Uh, well, I say that because we can debate how we've gotten there. We can debate that all we want. But the reality is that when you look at the ticket right now in your hand, when you look at the world around us, doesn't it feel a little more, more like Babylon? That we've landed in Babylon. And so again, if that's the case, then what do we have to remember? And that's our second point. We have to remember that we are exiles 
We are exiles placed for a purpose in this city, but persevering toward another. Again, when we, when we survey the landscape and we consider, again, the, the, the deterioration of, of cultural morality and all those kinds of things, it can weigh on us, right? And in a way, it rightly should. We can grieve, like I said, we can mourn that. But maybe in a more positive way, or maybe in a glass half full kind of way. It can also be the smelling salts for the Christian. The smelling salts that remind us and wake us up again to certain inherently biblical truths. What what does Peter tell us? That we're aliens that we're exiles. Hebrews uses the same language towards the end of the New Testament. And again, it's being reinforced here in Jeremiah. And it just wakes us up. It, it, it rouses us to that reminding quality of what that then entails for us. And we have to pivot. We have to pivot then to that new reality. I, I experienced this a little bit when I went to Scotland um, a while ago now. Got to play golf in Scotland. That was pretty awesome. You can see the red in my beard, right? So it was a lot of fun. Uh, but I was in Scotland, and I thought to myself how comfortable I felt at first. And uh, just how little I've traveled. You know, oh, English is the primary language in Scotland. It, I landed in the plane. You know, I was with a bunch of people. It felt very much like home. You know, it didn't feel that, that foreign. Until we uh, hailed a cab to take us somewhere in the city, and the guy pulls up in the cab, and we get in the back seat, and he starts asking us where we want to go, but I can't understand a word he is saying. I mean, it is, I I literally have no idea what's happening. Uh, And I thought to myself, you know, I thought English was the primary language, like I I thought I wouldn't have to get like a translator. What's the deal, right? And I, I, can, I tell you, I can't understand anything he was saying. And of course, the reality is that the, the Scottish brogue, right, for a native Scot is so thick. And it's such a beautiful, I mean, just one-of-a-kind sound, uh, speaking English, but as if he wasn't, right? And I had no idea. But I remember in that moment, like, it really struck me how in the backseat of that cab even, I went from being very comfortable uh, very much feeling like I was at home, to in that instant just feeling like a complete outsider, uh, feeling like a, a genuine foreigner, and then thinking, okay, well, what does this now mean for me, right? I have to now uh, act differently. I have to maybe uh, be a little more prepared uh, to, to just to navigate my circumstances. Well, again, this is what's happening here in the people of Jeremiah's day. And that's what's happening even for us today. That we take a look around us, and in many ways, we feel at home, right? We work in the same buildings. We patron the same restaurants. We buy and sell homes. I was rooting for the Tampa Bay Rays in the World Series as hard as a non-Christian who might live in Tampa, right? We root for the same sports team. We do all the same things. It feels very much at home, but upon closer look, we realize we're not at home. We're not at home. We're exiles. And so, again, Jeremiah writes to explain to them, then, the exile 
life. And the main instruction that you may have noticed that he gives is for them to pivot in their minds. And I think the same thing is true for us today. You know, no matter what the future of this country looks like or or where the Lord takes us, we have to pivot in our minds from seeing exile as punishment and instead seeing God's providential purpose in it. We pivot from seeing exile or being an outsider or being an outcast or an alien in this world. We pivot from seeing it as punishment to seeing it as God's providential purpose. We pivot from the grief of a forgotten past to the hope of a secured future, right? The hope of a secured future in the plan of God and to see his intentionality in the midst of it. And to see and to remind ourselves that if God can, can draw straight lines, as you've heard me say, he can draw straight lines with the crooked sticks of our lives, He can also draw straight lines for his plan of redemption, even through the crooked history, right, of what happens all over the globe, all throughout time. And so there was this real call for the people to pursue, as you notice, the peace and prosperity of this temporal home to which they had been placed in exile, to pursue the peace and prosperity of the earthly city of man, And to do so, recognizing that for their own sake, a rising tide lifts all boats. When JFK said that decades ago, you may not realize he was actually paraphrasing. I'm kidding. He was paraphrasing from Jeremiah in a sense, right? A a, a rising tide, a better society for everybody lifts all boats. And so even as a Christian, we work for the peace and prosperity of the city of man. But we can do so effectively and we can do so realizing that we are bringing into the city of man glimpses of the city of God. Glimpses of what it will one day look like when he sets everything right. And so that's why it often starts with cultural engagement. And that's why even here in Jeremiah, when he says things like plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, that is a biblical way of saying that we are called to engage the community around us. That we are actually called towards cultural engagement and it begins in our neighborhoods and it begins in our civic associations and it begins by being active on our little league teams and our business bureaus by not putting our heads in the sand but shining bright in the darkness, bringing good news into a bad news world. And that's why even today, friends, we invite four kids to be here, right? Four kids is an example of doing that very thing of taking a societal ill, the displacement of children, the abandonment and the abuse of children. And in a sense, it's been a problem that's been thrust at the church's doorstep. And instead of us saying, nah, not our problem, you know, the the Titanic's sinking no matter what, we're just rearranging the deck chairs. No, the church responds, the church engages. The church adopts that problem and brings into that dark situation, the light of the gospel. We bring glimpses of the city of God. And so here in Jeremiah, it's the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament call by Christ to be salt and light, to bring that that common grace to all the world, to all of our community. And so we engage culturally, and you see Jeremiah, again, tell them that. And think about how hard that would have been for those people to hear. 
taken from their homeland, taken from everything they know, thrust into a, a completely foreign place. What does Jeremiah say? Put down roots. Put down roots. Don't see this as God's punishment upon you, but see it as God's purpose. See it as God's opportunity. And as we know, when we engage culturally, what, is it, what happens? It then creates relationship. It creates relationship, right? When we show an interest in the culture, when we show an interest in our community, it actually builds relationship. And then into those relationships, we can then bring the greater peace of God, right? The greater prosperity. We bring shalom. The peace of knowing that we can have right standing with God because of Christ. We can bring the message of the riches of his kindness to us in Christ. And so as we engage in culture, it builds relationship and it gives platform and it gives opportunity for the gospel. How we live in our society, pursuing its peace and prosperity and justice, again, shows that we are motivated by this greater city which is to come. And if we feel discouraged today, if we look at the news headlines, if we look around us and say, yeah, that sounds great, but where's the proof it's actually happening? (laughs) You know? We have to remind ourselves of the New Testament. That we plant these seeds when we engage our culture. We plant these seeds when we engage our communities. And God does the rest. What does he say in in the Gospel of Mark? Hear this in Mark chapter 4. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. I love the way that Mark puts it. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What a great picture. He scatters seed, rises day and night, and it grows, and he has no idea how it happens. (laughs) That's the paraphrase, right? And that's our call as well. We're agents of renewal. We're agents of the gospel, agents of light in the darkness. We scatter the seed of the gospel, and it grows, and we know not how. And the kingdom grows unseen until one day it becomes this shade tree where it says the birds of the air can make their nests. And again, this is the calling for us as well, to look at the kingdom advancement of God through the eyes of faith. To look through the eyes of faith. But Jeremiah also points us to one other thing. You see, if the people had not been faithful to actually abide by his message, if the people had not been faithful to actually put down the roots that he called them to to put down and to, to be salt and light, then actually the pathway to the gospel wouldn't have been paved as beautifully as it was. Because if you remember, what happens when the birth of Christ, 
their ultimate hope actually comes, when the birth of the Messiah actually comes. Do you remember who visits Christ? It's Magi, right? Magi from the East. And there's debate over just who exactly these mysterious men are, but we know enough to know that they are the intelligentsia, sort of, the, the, the highest of high in the East. And many scholars believe they're actually men who come from Babylon, of all places, to come and visit and to see the birth of the Messiah. But the question is, well, how would they have known? How would they have known to come and look for the star? How would they have known to come and look for the birth of the one who would be the hope of the world, who would usher in the ultimate city of God? And the answer before us is that it's because of the faithfulness of God's people when they were in exile. When they were in exile, they heed the words of Jeremiah. They put down roots. And it's not perfect, we know that. But they put down roots and they share the message. And these two polarized and, and, and far apart cultures actually find a bridge being built through the gospel as it's shared and the message is shared and that understanding of Messiah and Christ is actually woven into the fabric of that culture so that even later into the New Testament when Christ comes, there's knowledge. There's knowledge. And that's the same exact calling and picture for us. That we put down roots where God has placed us. We engage those around us. We recognize that we are exiles called to be salt and light. And we persevere here in this earthly city. But we continue to point ourselves and others to the lasting city. To the city that is to come. And so again, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, regardless of what happens going forward in our lives, our country, however we, however we interpret history, we have to remind ourselves that yes, God has placed us here, but he's called us to point ourselves and others to that lasting city, the city of God, whose architect and whose builder is God. Hear this from, from Hebrews as we close. The unchanging hope and future that we have, the fulfillment of that promise in Jeremiah to give us hope and a future, to be for us and not against us. It says this in Hebrews, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your persevering grace, your preserving grace. We thank you, Lord, that when we step back from our own lives and recognize that we are part of that larger people of God, when we step back from our lives and realize that we are part of that larger capital C church, which spans 
generations, which spans nations and histories, then Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you are always with us, that you always have a plan, that yes, you do root us and you do ground us in specific times and places and you do indeed call us to be people who recognize our context, who do engage as we've heard here in Jeremiah and seen. But Lord, we ultimately recognize and take comfort in the fact that our hope is grounded in something bigger and something brighter in that larger kingdom of God, which is much, much bigger than all of us, much, much bigger than all of our present circumstances. And so Lord, would you do that double work, we pray, of motivating us, of sending us, of animating us, to do the work of ministry. But at the same time, would you also encourage us to fix our gaze on the horizon, to fix our gaze on that ultimate city which is to come, to fix our gaze on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to take our ultimate hope and security and identity and purpose and satisfaction and contentment in him and in the work of the gospel. So Lord, we thank you for this reminder through your holy word and ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.